Welcome to the inaugural podcast for Encode Ideas. My name is Hogan Mullally. I'm a partner at Encode. We're planning on making this podcast a regular series where every few weeks I interview executives from microcap and small cap healthcare companies, portfolio managers who invest in microcap and small cap healthcare, and also key opinion leaders who can offer insights into therapeutic areas of interest. If you've had a chance to read our research at Encode Ideas, you'll know that we really focus on making our research accessible. Accessible not only by making it free, but accessible in the language that we use. We find that cell-side research does an excellent job writing high science, technical research for a high science, technical audience. PhDs writing for PhDs. However, we think there's a substantial untapped audience that either can't access cell-side research, or even if they can, struggle to interpret it. This large audience, we'll call it the generalist investor, is who we are targeting with our research at ENCODE. That same theme, accessibility, the generalist investor, will run through our podcast series. We regularly listen to corporate presentations at investment banking conferences. In particular, we like the fireside chat model where an analyst interviews an executive from a medical company. However, we find that the questions often follow a predictable cadence and often focus on high science. We're planning on having our podcast be more of a eclectic fireside chat model, where we ask questions that may be of more interest to a generalist investor. These can include more corporate background, perhaps cap structure questions, catalyst questions, questions about peers. That's the vision for the podcast. Two final things I'd like to point out. The first, disclosure. If you've had an opportunity to read our research, you'll know we're very forthcoming with disclosure. If we've received any financial compensation from a company, we put it on the front cover of our research. We will be equally transparent with our podcast series. If we have any financial interest in a company that we are interviewing, we will disclose it at the front end. Finally, this podcast series is not for investment purposes. It should not be viewed as investment advice. It is for entertainment purposes only. And I do truly hope we entertain you. With those formalities behind us, I look forward to moving to our first interview. Before jumping into our first interview with Gideon Shapiro of Bright Minds Biosciences, I'd like to provide a little bit of background on how we arrived at Gideon and Bright Minds as our first podcast interview. I came across Bright Minds Biosciences at a virtual investor conference some three or four months ago and was intrigued by the brief corporate description that talked about an NCE approach to the psychedelic space. I suppose I approached the psychedelic space with a healthy dose of skepticism. I'm a Canadian and I've always found Canada's relationship with biotech as a really curious one. Fundamentally, Canadian investors have little to no interest in traditional drug development, but they are more than happy to pour money into the fringes of healthcare. Most recent example was the cannabis craze here, where every mining shell became a new cannabis company. 
And although 90% of those have now disappeared or on life support, it appeared that the same thing was happening with the psychedelic space where old shells of broken cannabis companies, mining companies were now being used to take psychedelic companies public. So I sort of approached this sector with a really healthy dose of skepticism. And when I saw the Bright Minds description, it just appeared to have some different aspects to it. So I figured I'd tune in and, and hear what they had to say. So I listened to the presentation by Ian McDonald, their CEO. It was good. It was light on detail, early stage, but I decided to give him a call and see if I could peel the onion a little further, find out what was going on there. And frankly, every subsequent interaction I've had with the company, I've been more and more impressed. Ian himself was a Canadian investment banker, which should be a red flag. And it was a red flag to me until I spoke to him. And I was surprised at his depth of knowledge of the psychedelic space, how non-promotional he was, how frankly cerebral the guy was. And then as I've done more calls, I have been connected with other parts of the management team and was really impressed with this particular gentleman, Gideon Shapiro, who had this very long history with the psychedelic space from a personal perspective, from an academic perspective, from a corporate perspective. And the more I had conversations with him, the more I really was intrigued by both Bright Minds and his history and his perspective on the current psychedelic investment uh, environment. So I bought a little stock, hard to buy, very hard to buy, traded by appointment on the Canadian Stock Exchange. And started to do a little work on a research report, which is still a work in progress. We'll see where that goes. And then we decided to go on this podcast series. And I thought, what a topical name, because any day now, this company is going to be listed on NASDAQ. It's in a very good area, the psychedelic space, as far as investor interest goes. And no one else was talking about it, which is something I always love. I love a name that is completely unknown or undiscovered. That is, you know, something that really I like to be first, like to be uh, early. So as I'm quietly working behind the scenes on a potential research report and talking to Gideon about being our first podcast guest, and the company is drawing closer to a NASDAQ listing, which should draw lots of eyeballs to it. And there's no social media conversation going on about this company at all. Just the odd, erratic tweet that has no real serious followers behind it. Then about two weeks ago, as I'm doing all this week, maybe it was a week ago, I can't even recall now, Julia Skripka, hopefully I'm not doing a disservice to her last name. I apologize if I am. One of my favorite people on social media when it comes to bio Twitter, she'd been hinting at having a name in the psychedelic space because she's previously been tweeting about some psychedelic names. She had another name, very thin, very illiquid, very unknown. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I just hope it's not Bright Minds. I, it can't be Bright Minds. No one would know us about this company. It's so thinly traded, Canadian Stock Exchange, OTC, so off the radar. But sure enough, in the last couple of weeks, Julia has begun tweeting about Bright Minds Biosciences. So we aren't the first ones talking about it, but it's always great to have company on these kind of names. So we are ecstatic to be able to 
do this first podcast with with Gideon Shapiro of Bright Minds, I would highlight that we've had no compensation from uh, Encode Ideas has had no compensation from Bright Minds, but I do personally own some stock. And with all that long, tiring preamble behind us, let's now move on to my interview with Gideon Shapiro of Bright Minds Biosciences. I'd like to welcome Gideon Shapiro, Vice President of Discovery at Bright Minds Biosciences to the podcast. Gideon, thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. So your, your bio on the Bright Minds website describes you as a seasoned drug hunter. What, what does that mean exactly? Well, that means uh, that one has had, in my opinion, a deep experience in the pharmaceutical industry. And in my case, I think it's very important that, that one has experience in big pharma, the industry itself, uh, big pharma plus biopharma, biotech industry. And that really gives you both perspectives of what, what it takes to develop a drug with platinum-grade pharmaceutical industry quality, but also gives you the insight into being novel and inventive in the fast-moving arena of, of biotech. Uh, and what it takes to to get a biotech drug to the market. And those are two very different things. Both involve very high level of high quality science is always number one. But then thinking out of the box for biotech is important, especially uh, you know in, in uh, from an investment perspective or from a from a value creation perspective, which is sort of lost when you're just one cog in the wheel of big pharma. So I think that's really the key in that that one also needs to know from A to Z how to move fast and how to get, get drugs developed, not only just from the inventor side, but from all the other pieces that you have to do in a small company environment. Well, that segues nicely to, to my next question, which is, you know, you spent the majority of your career in CNS, drug discovery and development. You, you started with Sandoz, which obviously has some strong psychedelic roots and you recently also worked with a company developing a form of ketamine. So I'm curious, have you always been interested in the application of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health? I have been. Actually, that, that even goes back, uh, not necessarily for treating mental health, but the very beginnings when I was in graduate school at Berkeley, I read the history and I read Albert Hoffman's book, LSD, My Problem Child, and, and was fascinated with it and, and had also experienced LSD myself. That was which came first uh, was the experience. So I'd already gotten insight, and that was part of my transition to going from a, a PhD at, at Berkeley, actually wanting to go and, and live in Switzerland and do my postdoc there after I got my PhD at Berkeley. So that really was always an interest of mine, the, the mind-moving aspects of uh, psychedelics. And then, frankly, just the whole drug history of Hoffman, how he discovered it, and what came out of it was a fascinating insight. And, and on top of that, what was very interesting was I wound up being able to see him lecture during my postdoc uh, in 1985 at the University of Zurich. It was just tremendous to be able to see him lecture in German and having learned German experience that. And then uh, as luck would have it, it, it was a coincidence. I didn't go and take my, <laughs> start my job at Sandoz in Switzerland, by the way, in, in Basel, uh, where he invented LSD and had the experience and, and was head of the department. Uh, until he retired. And that was just coincidence. 
as it turns out, I uh, actually started my career in, in Alzheimer's disease at Sandoz. Uh, that was you know, basically the heyday of the psychedelics and that whole history of the past. But I was still fascinated by it. And li- life works in strange ways, how I've come back to it in the second half of my career, which is after neurodegeneration Alzheimer's has moved into the, psych- into the psychiatry realm over the last 15 years that I've been engaged in. Great. And and so fast forwarding to today, I'm curious uh, to get your opinion on how important Janssen's development of esketamine has been for the rejuvenation of the psychedelic space. That is just groundbreaking. And that really is the pioneer, the leader, I think, that's essential for this new real paradigm shift in psychiatric drugs and it didn't it didn't wasn't called the first breakthrough and major big breakthrough in psychiatry in 50 years the approval of ketamine as sparato from j and j what that really has heralded in is this new way of treating psychiatry which and medicine which isn't a daily pill so the the standard of care has been ssris for, for depression uh, as a daily medicine and this whole paradigm shift really is, is now mainstream because of ketamine, that you can take a drug that can do essentially a brain reset and treat a major disease. Uh, the, the drugs of today do not treat major depressive disorder. The, the SSRIs are effective only on, on moderate, mild to moderate depression. They just don't work on major depressive disorder. In fact, Another name for major depressive order is TRD or treatment-resistant depression. So inherent in the definition of disease is they're not treatable with SSRIs. Uh, so essentially, this new paradigm shift that you can take a drug on an inter- intermittent schedule once a week initially or once then once a month and can have a long-term effect on essentially resetting a defective brain circuit in a psychiatric disease is is a huge paradigm shift. And that's what the psychedelics do as well. So now we have really, but they're not approved. So now we have the first approved drug that works clinically and is approved by the FDA and is undeniably effective in major depressive disorder. And also, I believe it will be, there are already clinical trials that show in PTSD so what that shows is different mechanisms essentially can work to reset uh, the brain uh, and treat psychiatry in, in an intermittent fashion uh, and have a major effect on severe disease. So I think it's critical. Uh, and for us at Bright Minds, it's also a learning experience into uh, we, are, we are learning and have the insight from also from my work in next generation ketamines that are safer into really what what the likely dosing schedule is and the effectiveness of this type of brain reset drug is going to be. And I think there's some misconceptions in the psychedelic community about uh, what you could expect from a psychedelic drug, this sort of of theory that you could treat someone once or twice and they're cured for life, I think is is unrealistic based on the experience of, of ketamine. And that's why Bright Minds is addressing that with this next generation of drug, which has to be safer to, to really reach the millions of patients that need the, the treatment. Right. And so we're in agreement that the FDA approval of Spravato is, has been a 
critical part of the renewed interest in psychedelics. Specific to Bright Minds, how important, though, as Compass's success, you know, with their phase two proof of concept data published in the New England Journal of Medicine, their success in the capital markets, how much has Compass's success enabled Bright Minds? Uh, tremendously. Uh, that's sort of the second leg. The first leg is with ketamine. The second leg is that now it will be accepted mainstream also that psychedelics work uh, and are efficacious. So it's really critical to us to be positioned that it's accepted throughout uh, the investment community from a financial perspective, but also through the medical community that's going to be accepted. So this general acceptance of psychedelics as medicines is critical to us as a company that's trying to generate second generation improvements on that medicine. So we start out, we, our working hypothesis has to start from the position that psychedelics are efficacious. So it's critical that for us that that's recognized because our focus is not on that they're efficacious, but that our drugs will be safer and improvements on what's currently uh, the standard of care. So what we want is, is Compass and this first generation of natural products of psilocybin, MDMA, uh, et cetera, to be successful. Um, that positions us very well because then we can essentially graft off of that with follow-on therapies that are safer and can expand the market by being safer and having less of the limitations that the first generation uh, natural products like psilocybin have that are recognized by the experts and the regulatory uh, agencies. So is it safe to assume then that Compass's impending phase 2B data, which we're expecting by year end, will be extremely important for the psychedelic psilocybin 2A space? I mean, are you watching these data very closely? Yes. I mean, it's very important to us that Compass is successful. Uh, it's a critical piece, and, and that's that's our projection. I and and we're we're quite confident that some measure of success, the minimum, it's not going to be a flop. So I think we we can say from there's enough data, historical data out there, not only from psilocybin, but from MMDA, from DMT, etc., and the basic science of the mechanism, that this is an effect, efficacious fundamental pharmacological mechanism of stimulating 5-HT2A receptors. So we're confident, but again, at least some measure of success and some, some signal is important to us. And, and we're quite confident that, that that will be the case. We've already seen with MDMA in PTSD. Uh, I think it's, it's fairly unequivocal and, and accepted as well. So uh, it, it's important to us and, and we're excited uh, to, for the success of, of all these first-generation uh, clinical trials. So moving on to Bright Minds specifically, you know, your 5-HT2A program is relatively early, given that you're working with novel chemistry, you know, besides the clear IP advantage that having an NCE gives you, what other attributes are you trying to improve upon from the first generation psychedelics? You've, you've already uh, hinted at some of those, but can you elaborate on what uh, will differentiate second-generation two-way products versus this first generation? Absolutely. Uh, there's essentially three 
uh, pillars to our approach. Uh, one you already mentioned is NCE, uh, and that is intellectual property. That's that's the strongest you can get, and it's defensible. That's what sets us apart. So as you said, we're generating NCEs, which are novel chemical entities that are intrinsically have long-term and solid patent protection uh, for marketability. From the drug perspective, the key things, there are two main things we're trying to achieve that are essential. Uh, and one is superior safety. And that safety uh, is conferred in, in terms of the compounds or the drug selectivity for the receptor subtypes. So within the 5-HT2A the compounds of today, they are unselective for the 5-HT2B and 5-HT2C receptor subtypes. So uh, the problem is that the 5-HT2B receptor is located on the cardiac heart valves and is well-known in a regulatory risk that's well-recognized for cardiovalvulopathy and has caused death in patients and has been the reason for uh, several drug removals from the market, the most notable being uh, the diet drug Fenfen. Uh, where there were several deaths associated with, with the drug. So essentially, that's an intrinsic black, as you say, a black box or a label warning and a high safety uh, barrier or basic constraint to how often you could dose the drug and what dose you could give and the limitation that the FDA is going to place on it. So safety is number one. That means that if you look at the clinical trials of today in these tests, those drugs are administered essentially twice in a lifetime is the only approval they have. So it's spaced between six weeks or three months, essentially you give one dose and then you can give another dose and that's it. So essentially what we know from a disease is, and from the ketamine experience is that uh, the frequency of dosing uh, is, you don't wanna be restricted on that. Different patients with different levels of disease and severity may need different dosing schedules. For example, ketamine needs to be dosed actually from all of the clinical experience we know. Initially, it started out at once a week uh, for a month. Then they actually found that you really needed twice a week to get a better signal. So when you're talking about a few patients, you know, that kind of thing is fine. But when you're talking about statistics and millions of you know, thousands of patients, then you have heterogeneity and you have a disease that waxes and wanes. So uh, it'll come back. Depression comes in waves and you might be fine for a year, you might be fine for six months, and then you'd need another uh, dosing. And so that's pretty much our, our view and is consistent with the disease and the ketamine experience that uh, patients are, are going to need less restrictions on how often and how high they can dose. And so that's what we're doing by making drugs that essentially are molecular engineered tuned for selectivity that do not have this 5-HT2B component that is going to be a, a strict safety concern from the FDA uh, in terms of monitoring and a limitation of the current uh, generation of drugs. So uh, this is what happens all the time in the pharmaceutical industry. Somebody comes out with a first generation drug, it's got side effects or safety limitations. And then the whole industry works on basically as molecular engineers to clone the receptors and to make and to have a chemistry effort to make something that's that's better that has less effects on the off what we call off-target safety liabilities. Um, so that's number one. What we are doing, we're using that's what we are. We're basically drug engineers. We have the pharmacology. We have the clone receptors. We have the screening paradigms to identify drugs that are selective that won't have the side effect 
that's the, the first thing. So safety is first and foremost with the FDA. Efficacy, uh, that, that first and foremost, do no harm. Have a very safe drug. So that's number one focus. The other focus is the duration of action. So the trip time of psilocybin uh, and the duration of action of how long you have to go into the clinic before you or have your psychiatry before you're released is typically on the order of six hours uh, or more. And so that's a prohibitive uh, aspect of the current generation of drugs that you have to be captive or before you can be released for so long. And obviously with ketamine, that's more like on the order of, of two to four hours. So that's much more manageable. So what we're trying to do in addition is basically shorten the time that you need to be in the clinic uh, and monitored for safety uh, from the trip experience with the drug. So if we can get that down uh, to on the order again, uh, at least uh, of two hours or so, uh, so you can be released safely, that would be a major improvement. You can have higher throughput uh, in the clinic and it's much less onerous on the patient. So it's, it's quite onerous today, even with MDMA and its current generation of drugs, the, the treatment time and the duration that you have to be held in the clinic. Uh, so those are the two biggies of how we're engineering, number one, a safe drug that can be dosed uh, as frequently as you need it based on your needs as a patient. Uh, and then from patient compliance that you can go in, even during a workday, potentially be treated and be released. Do you think we could see some M&A uh, activity in this space soon? I mean, obviously, J&J has exposure here with Spravato, and I think uh, Otsuka just did a ketamine deal, if I'm not mistaken. But are you hearing about other prominent pharmaceutical companies poking around on the psychedelic space? Yeah, I think that's been the most surprising for us is the rapidity at which big pharma is embracing and realizing that this is a next wave breakthrough in psychiatry. Uh, and all of a sudden, something where they, they've got to get in early and cannot miss the boat. So we've been seeing a lot of interest now from pharmaceutical companies to discuss, look at data. And I believe partner opportunities are going to be, are, are they there? We know they are uh, already. So what deals get made and and how that happens, I have no doubt that's happening a lot faster than I would have anticipated. I thought it would take longer. Typically, big pharma is very conservative, but uh, with basically the fact that there's no new science and this is the best new opportunity in psychiatry to come along in, in 50 years, starting now with ketamine, people have realized uh, that, uh, and, and the psych psychedelics that, again, that, that just speaks to the fact that they work. Uh, and there's a major medical need. The market is enormous. So uh, I believe there's going to be a lot of M&A, a lot of partnering, not necessarily M&A, but a lot of deals made uh, and very exciting deals uh, in the space, particularly for com companies that have IP. So one, one thing I caveat to that is uh, Big Pharma is going to want companies that have NCEs that are traditional, that have patent life, that they can then if they're going to spend the half a billion dollars or so to develop a drug, they're going to need NC patent protection. Yeah, that makes sense. And we've been spending a lot of time here talking about Bright Minds as a psychedelic company. But is that really a proper definition of Bright Minds? Aren't you more of a sort of targeted 5-HT 
company? That's correct. I mean, obviously, in this space, it's, it's, you have to pick a name that defines you as best that, that the investor or the, the community can understand quickly. So uh, naturally, since we fall in the psychedelic bucket, and that is really the, the crown jewel, of the, the, the major opportunity, we sort of have that label. But as you said, we're really a, uh, a risk mitigating sort of big farm, typical biotech play where we have a a franchise based on the technology of, and our know-how in, in serotonin or 5-HT drug space. So we have a pipeline, actually, our, actually our lead compound is, that's positioned to go into the clinic next year and the early next year is, is a 5-HT2C drug, which is an established big pharma target where uh, a compound had already reached the market uh, a decade ago from arena called uh, Lorcaserin or Belvic in uh, recently was was removed from the market. They dropped it a little while ago, but there's been a resurgence now, uh, actually in the neurology space in pediatric epilepsy. So, as you said, we're really a, a pipeline five technology company uh, that happens to that technology happens to be applicable in terms of the the clone receptor screening and the drug medicinal chemistry optimization to making this five HT two class of drugs. And so five, there's 5-HT2A, which are psychedelics. And then there's 5-HT2C, which are drugs that can be applied to now, most recently, the excitement in neurology and pediatric, pediatric epilepsies were focused on Trevay disease where GW Pharma developed cannabidiol. So that, uh, investors can really recognize that opportunity is huge. And, and recently, there's been a, an approval of a drug called Fintepla that's serotonergic. That's also uh, got the same safety issues as as the current psychedelics. So almost the exact same positioning we have in 5-HT2C for Dravet's disease with the drug that's positioned uh, as a safer alternative to the recent approval of Fintepla, which is an unselective uh, 5-HT drug similar uh, to, to psilocybin in that it needs a huge safety monitoring program for this 5-HT2B cardiovascular intrinsic risk. So uh, we're well positioned uh, there. And actually that's our lead clinical program with the 2A program just behind it, as, as you mentioned. So we're really a pipeline franchise company, as you mentioned, based on drug optimization for these target receptors and medicinal chemistry to make uh, NCDs. You basically answered my next question, so I, I'll try to frame it in a way that maybe takes you down a different uh, path a little bit. But it was, you know, with regards to the 2C program and Dravet, and I think investors know that Dravet is a exciting market, as you mentioned, you know, GW with Epidiolex and now Zogenics with Fintepla have really raised awareness around this childhood epilepsy. And I was going to ask you, where do you see your advantages or differentiations versus, you know, these two incumbent products? You mentioned safety as it relates to Fintepla. Uh, are there other advantages that your 2C program could have over these other incumbents? So with respect, I, I can't really opine with respect to cannabidiol as, as with many diseases, even like blood pressure, you have different mechanisms that work and it's always good to have different classes of drug that work. And then the physician, not all patients respond to a given medicine. So uh, certainly it's, it's great to have alternatives in the respect to Fintepla where the mechanism is, is, is related, being serotonergic, it's the safety that's, that's really key. So I think the advantage is that 
it, it's another class. It's early days until you get to the clinic and, uh, and you get the efficacy in the patient. So I think that the main thing is there's no, there's room for, in a, in a market like that, in a severe disease, there's room for many players and, and many mechanisms. And the market is exciting and, and big enough uh, in terms of uh, opportunity that it's just a, a good opportunity for, for a company to pursue. If, if you, even if there was another mechanism, I would say, great. You know, we need, we also want advanced medicine here. So the more shots that we have on different mechanisms that work for disease, the better. You see that in migraine. There's a new class of migraine drugs that has come on the market. The other ones worked, but, you know, didn't work for everyone and have limitations. So medicine is always looking for new effective mechanisms that can complement, supplement uh, existing therapies, be that something as simple as blood pressure you'll, or, or cholesterol, right? You see new cholesterol medicines that are, that are high-tech cholesterol medicines that have a market, even though there's a, a small population of patients that need them. You know, and I think that's a great point, especially when we think of these pediatric epilepsies, the goal should be seizure freedom. And right. every every seizure is something that should be, if it can be addressed through therapy, should be treated. So I think it's important that multiple mechanisms, I think I mentioned to you before, we've recently had some success with a adult focal epilepsy company called Xenon Pharmaceuticals, which has just delivered some robust phase 2B data with a novel potassium channel mechanism. You know, that's a highly genericized class with a whole bunch of existing FDA-approved drugs, but this would be the first potassium channel product. And again, even though the class is busy, this would be the first uh, potassium channel product, which would you know slot in nicely for refractory patients. So there's seizure freedom is the goal when it comes to epilepsy. So I I definitely see a role for for more uh, other differentiated you know two C products that have a cleaner safety profile. I mean, the other thing that I didn't mention is, of course, through the follow-on indications. So if you have something and you enter into an orphan disease where there's a huge medical need and you show it works, now you can proceed to other childhood epilepsies, Lennox Gusto, and potentially even to, you know, mainstream epilepsies with a drug now that a fintephaly you couldn't use because of the safety risks. So what it does is if you've got a safe drug and you enter in a high-risk indication where you where you've got a, a very safe drug and, and you're displacing or, or complementing other drugs, you can move that out and expand that. Now you're on the market. Uh, and there are many other applications of 5-HT2C drugs. So what it does is that approval, 5-HT2C drugs are, were actually approved already previously for, for obesity and were initially studied for impulse disorders, uh, OCD. So there is a role in neuropsychiatry as well for 5-HT2C drugs. So uh, getting a foothold in the market can give you indication expansion as well. These 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 are very fundamental mechanisms that can have other indications, uh, even in psychiatry. I completely agree. Uh, do you do you think this is an asset that you take deep into the clinic, or is this more likely a partnerable asset that allows you to focus exclusively on the psychedelic two A space? We're opportunistic. So I wouldn't want to rule out anything at this point. I think typically the, the key for any small biotech company is to get into the clinic. So usually the value inflection point and your negotiating power goes up 
But we've seen that change recently. There's a lot of a lot of action now in in preclinical IND, pre-IND deal stage. If it's recognized that you've got really exciting technology or, or a platform, essentially, we're a drug company, but we have a, essentially a platform as well. These how to discover 5-HT drugs. So anything is possible, and we've seen enough interest that that certainly, I would say, certainly as you said. Once we're in the clinic, partnering opportunities would be exploited. And as usual with anything, there's a price for everything. <laughs> so, Yes, that's, that's a fair answer. So for you're an early stage Canadian OTC listed company. So I was surprised to see a few notable healthcare investors in your cap table with Orbimed and Sfera there. You know, are you involved in, in investor conversations? And if so, are you seeing continued good interest from these type of smart money, deep science funds? Uh, yeah, I, I'm involved in all, I've been involved in, in all of those discussions. Uh, and it speaks to, and again, as with the, the big pharma partnering interest early that we've seen, I mean, this basically is a major statement. The fact that investors are, are seeing it as well. So basically, the market is telling, just when the market moves, that tells you something. That's a prognosticator. So the fact that so many sophisticated investors are so interested in the space, even at early stage, I was quite surprised at the level of interest uh, and commitment. Uh, and I think it's, it's two things. It's, it's not only the, the profit motive. I think what's special about the psychedelic space is that it's also exciting from a medicine perspective and a societal perspective. So I think it touches two aspects that are the perfect storm, uh, namely that we're doing good, we're making major breakthroughs in medicine, and then the key is to recognize as the investor which companies will have financial reward on top of that and have a business model that will create financial success as well. So I, there's continued interest. This is not a fad is the main point. This is people see this. This is a long-term paradigm shift in medicine. Uh, there'll be winners and losers as in everything, but it's not going to be a fad. It's sort of like the internet. The internet was a fad initially, but it, it was here to stay and business was to be had and there'd be winners and losers, but eventually uh, it's mainstream and it's part of our lives and, and that will be unstoppable. We cannot stop the, the momentum, in my opinion, in, in medicine. Medicine will speak for itself that this works. There are millions of people suffering from severe dis psychiatric disorders. Everybody knows someone or, or, or has themselves had bouts of depression. And that speaks to a lot of people and as an a ongoing need where we always will need now and in the future, new medicines, safer medicines, many different opportunities or ways to treat them to make the world a better place. So when I first stumbled across uh, Bright Minds, what really caught my eye was your, you know, your NCE approach. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in that second generation NCE novel chemistry approach. Are there other companies in the psychedelic space that are taking a similar traditional pharmaceutical development approach? And if so, you know, which other ones out there have, have caught your attention? Yeah. So we were early, I think, and maybe even first to the game of recognizing that and assembling a team of experts with that experience to do that. 
uh, as this evolves, even though Compass and the big companies, they have all recognized this. So really, I think things, even if a company is not, has not started out in that direction, if it's, a, if it's a company based on a drug or a chemistry and it's not just delivering some psychedelics companies, it's, it's an ecosystem where some companies are providing a therapy or concentrating on other aspects of the ecosystem. Uh, we're early. There are a few companies that are working that even, even Cybin itself, although they're working with first generation, is dipping its toe into, into minor modifications of the existing natural products. So there's a spectrum of what you would call an NCE in this range. We are full-blown different molecules. Some people are adding deuteriums and doing small tricks to the molecules, but uh, also Compass no doubt uh, recognizes and has programs and are thinking about you know, what's next. So you can't be in this business and not be thinking about what's next. And as far as the stage of implementation, you know, I'm not privy or would want to talk too much about where other people are and what they're doing and, and comment on those. Uh, we're very focused on what we're doing. We know what we're doing. We have clear goals uh, and an expert team to execute on it. So I don't worry too much, too much about the other guys. Gideon, this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate all the uh, information and insight that you've provided. This is an area that I'm still ramping up my knowledge on. I'm curious, though, and I'll, this is the last question I'll ask you, and it's a bit of an underhand pitch, but you know, where do you see Bright Minds two to three years from now? I see Bright Minds, again, uh, having established this, the 5-HC2C program efficacy, and showing proof of concept and advanced clinical studies in the Dervais arena. So I see that asset positioned either by ourselves or in a, in a partnership with Big Pharma in late stage two or phase three trials, potentially even early approval, depending on you know, how, how good the results are. And the 5-HTA program, again, I see again that we will have a, a next generation drug that's in advanced clinical trials and potentially also uh, a big partnership. So that's pretty much then behind that, we have basically follow-on compounds. We have some other ideas for mixed profile compounds and expanding the pipeline in our 5-HD franchise. So I think we'll be recognized as sort of a leader in 5-HD franchise drugs for both psychedelic and in other indications with our platform. Gideon, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate uh, all the insight and information. Thank you for having me. It's been, uh, it's been great. A few concluding thoughts and comments after this first interview. Although we're publishing this podcast on Monday, October 11th, the interview was in fact done at the end of the previous week. We're hoping by publishing it on the 11th, that it will nicely coincide with a NASDAQ listing for Bright Minds sometime this same week. I want to be clear though, we have no visibility and assurance that will occur. And finally, I'd like to remind our listeners that although I have disclosed that I own shares in Bright Minds, that this podcast should not be taken as investment advice. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Thank you so much for listening to this first podcast, and I look forward to sharing future podcasts with you.